is the Amadon Planet Podcast, episode 48. I'm your host, Joel Amadon. Thank you for joining me on this never-ending quest to figure out how to teach better. Today on the podcast, we are starting something. We're starting something called Book Clubs and a Bonus. And really what this is is a four-part series where I'm going to be replaying some episodes of another podcast that I'm co-host, that I co-host called the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. I co-host it with uh, Ava Thanheiser from Portland State University and Dusty Jones from Sam Houston State University. And we, over the pandemic, we um, had some extra time, just like everybody, and uh, I couldn't bake sourdough, so I guess the thing that I was gonna do is read some books. And so we had some colleagues that wrote some books and we did some book clubs and did some chats uh, around each of those books, and so, what I'm going to be replaying at the end of these uh, these next four episodes is a summary, uh, or it's a culminating episode from those book clubs where we get to talk to the author or authors. And so you get access to that, and then maybe you're intrigued and you want to go either check out the book or you want to check out some of the chats if we have some of those available and having supporting materials. And the reason I wanted to do that is, hey, if you want to get together you know, with some colleagues and learn together, which is the best way to learn, right, <laughs> is learning together, and uh, do something around one of these books, we've got some materials ready for you uh, to do that. And so that's what we're doing. We're kind of releasing this stuff and like, hey, here's everything we have around Mandy Jansen's Rough Draft Math. And you're like, oh, Mandy Jansen, yeah, she was a previous episode on this podcast. Yeah, I know that. Um, but she's been a, an outstanding colleague and friend, and um, I think you're going to like uh that episode that we're going to run at the end of this episode uh, the, of the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. But um, before that is the bonus. And so the bonus is kind of fun. So again, trying to do something with the rerunning of the other episodes of the podcast, that's kind of reducing a little bit of work for the podcast, a little self-care. We shall be engaging some self-care. I think self-care summer, that's a good thing for this, uh, the summer of 2021. We need, all need that, especially teachers. And so I had some things that I want to talk about on the podcast that are really not worthy of a full episode, right? So there are things like, yeah, it'd be fun to do an episode on this. And maybe, maybe someone's like, yeah, I'd like to dive in and go deep with you, Joel, on an episode all about that topic. If that's the case, hey, reach out to me, joel at amazonplanet.com. If there's something in these next bonus episodes, you're like, yeah, I'd like to dive in deep on that. Um, one of them might be about Ted Lasso. I'd love to do a full episode on that, but right now it's kind of daunting, and especially with the uh, new ep- new season coming out of Ted Lasso. If anyone's really into Ted Lasso and thinking about it from a teaching perspective, I'd love to have you on. Anyway, um, but today, today I'm going to be talking about the book of basketball, the NBA according to the Sports Guy by Bill Simmons. It's one of my favorite books, and it's probably one of the nerdiest basketball books you can get now. Some of you might know who Bill Simmons is. He was a ESPN, uh, I guess, writer. He started off on page two, at least from when I learned about it. Shannon Lester, a buddy of mine, said, hey, this guy called the sports guy on page two on the ESPN website is really funny. You should check out some of the stuff he does. Started there, saw he had a podcast, and the podcast was really all over the place. I mean, you knew he loved basketball. He would go super deep and, like, uber geeky on basketball but then he'd also have like um uh, just celebrities on he had an awesome episode of his old uh, espn podcast he had a episode with uh, hulk hogan that was fascinating because i was a big you know wrestle wrestling fan back in the day 
Uh, remember when Hulk Hogan got hurt <laughs> when he was wrestling, and my dad wondered why I didn't write Hulk Hogan a letter wishing him to get better. I don't know. Anyway, I digress. But um, anyway, Bill Simmons, he's he, he famously, well, I guess, I guess famously, got fired from ESPN, or maybe he quit. I don't know exactly. But they were separated. Now he's in charge of The Ringer, which is a uh, website and podcast network. Uh, they've got podcast called rewatchables that's awesome actually some of the stuff from my podcast i kind of get from them with doing like categories for our books we've got certain categories that we hit same thing that they do on that podcast called rewatchables if you're into movies that's an awesome podcast if you never checked it out anyway i did want to talk about the book of basketball because in the book of basketball he goes super deep i mean there's a bunch of different things he does he like ranks teams he ranks players he sets up this theory, which I think is a pretty good theory for a pyramid-based, um, a pyramid-based Hall of Fame, so that there's only so many spots in like the upper part of the Hall of Fame, and then there's there's different tiers of players in the Hall of Fame, and so it makes a lot of sense when you hear about it because it's like rather than just saying like all Hall of Famers are equal, well they're not equal. Like Michael Jordan is not the same as. Uh, who's all for, like Chris Bosh. Chris Bosh is getting in. Love Chris Bosh, but he's not Michael Jordan, right? And when LeBron James and uh, or now Kobe Bryant's going in, like actually Kobe Bryant, I think Chris Bosh, I think are getting in at the same time now. And like they're not the same, right? Like they're and he's like maybe have them on different floors of a pyramid, a Hall of Fame that's a pyramid, kind of like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But each level of the Hall of Fame would be a different level of Hall of Famer. So that's what I mean. So anyway, he's got that. But he really, at the beginning of the book, he talks about the secret. And what's cool is also he did a uh, like kind of a follow up to this book, the book of basketball, which is uh, a podcast, <laughs> podcast format, because he said his, his fingers don't work anymore. So he's got a podcast where he kind of goes in and revisits some of the things he talks about in the book of basketball. Because, yeah, as soon as you publish a book where you rank all the players and then the NBA keeps going on players do some more things like he's adjusted ranking i actually think i heard that like maybe every month or every couple months he redoes his pyramid um redoes his rankings for the um for who's the best player it's again like i said he's really into uh the nba but anyway what i want to talk about with the book of basketball what i thought was kind of interesting from a teaching perspective is this thing that I think he kind of bases the whole book off of, which is called The Secret. And so he has a long story um, about The Secret. And again, I, I kind of went off on a tangent, but in the follow-up podcast to this book called The Book of Basketball Podcast 2.0, Book of Basketball 2.0 Podcast, something like that. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. He, he goes and he reads a lot of this chapter, and then he addresses some of it, what's changed based off of when he first read it. But anyway, The Secret talks about the secret deeply and you can hear that whole chapter basically in uh, podcast format which I'll again link to in the show notes but basically he talks about Isaiah Thomas introduced him to this idea of the secret and what is the secret and what is the secret of basketball and he has this long story about how he and Isaiah were in a little bit of a tiff and because Bill Simmons would rip Isaiah <laughs> Thomas for his um uh general manager duties that he did for the New York Knicks and it was not a, not a very good job and he just tore him down and Isaiah said you know if I it'd be a 
if I see a Bill Simmons, we're gonna we're gonna rumble or whatever. Anyway, there, there'd be a, a problem. And so they had it out. They they had a meeting of the minds. They met in somewhere in Vegas and they hashed it out. But Bill Simmons to really got on Isaiah's good side because he wanted to know about the secret. Because he heard in an interview one time that Isaiah Thomas talked about why his Pistons teams in the late 80s were so good. I mean, it was kind of an, a, an amazing team. If you think about it, no one on that team averaged over 20 points. It was a, I mean, I can still remember because that was right in my kind of heyday of paying attention to basketball where you got Vinnie Johnson, Joe Dumars, uh, Dennis Rodman, Isaiah Thomas, Bill Lambeer, um, who else? John Sally. Uh, Edwards, I can't remember his first name. But anyway, I, that team was a pretty good team. I think they, they won two championships uh, before the Bulls started winning championships and after the Lakers and Boston won championships. And so, you know, Isaiah Thomas would talk about this, you know, the, the secret, and that's why that team was so good and won championships. It was all about the secret. And Bill Simmons wanted to know about the secret. So when they hashed out their relationship, Bill Simmons asked about the secret and, you know, and this is the secret, I think is also the secret of teaching, right? He said that the secret of basketball is, it's not about basketball. It's about people, right? And I think that's the same thing for teaching. The secret of teaching, not only about teaching, it's about relationships and it's facilitating those relationships. And, and, and this is not anything new for listeners of this podcast, you remember when I talked about um, Megan Lampert's book, The Teaching with Problems and Problems with Teaching, we talked about like the instructional triangle about building relationships with the content and with your students and you need to use those relationships with the students and the content to figure out what you're going to put into place between students and content to facilitate their relationships. So this isn't anything new, but it's, it's cool when you see it reinforced in different things, in different worlds. It's like this almost like universal truth, right? And so the, the secret of basketball is that it's not about basketball. It is about people. And he, uh, in the book, he talks about um, this idea of this altruistic dynamic that hinged on players forfeiting numbers for the overall good of the team. You think about the parallel with teachers, that it's an altruistic dynamic that hinges on teachers forfeiting numbers for the overall good of the team. And you think about so many times, especially in this No Child Left Behind era that we're in, that the teacher knows what might be best for students might seem counter to producing the ultimate test result, right? That I need to do something that's going to build better people within my classroom that maybe might take away some instructional time where we're learning a vocabulary word or something. But I could also argue too that investing in students, investing in them as people is going to make that instructional time even more valuable. And again, going back to that podcast talking about Mangal Lampert's book, thinking about teaching and thinking about those relationships, like I, if I know my students better, I'm a better teacher for my students. If my students know me better, they are more receptive to the things that I'm trying to do with them as students. And so, you know, over and over, he, he brings up all sorts of different examples where he's, he cites play, historic players from the past and how they talk about the secret. Like um, uh, former Senator Bradley used to play for the Knicks, I believe, talked about basketball as a metaphor of, you know, ultimate cooperation, 
right? And having that sort of um, where you see like people working together and you can see the teams that sacrifice for each other, that show that altruistic dynamic that we talked about before are better operators. And when you, th- and I don't know if you've ever had a chance, if you didn't to go back and look at um, YouTube clips, but the Golden State Warriors had that when, I mean, when Kevin Durant joined, it was like to the, alt- the nth degree of this, the passes and the teamwork and the way that that team worked together, the way that, Draymond Green would know where people were when he gets a rebound and he gets an outlet pass out or um, or how Clay Thompson scored, I don't know how many points, but he, he scored like a ton of points, like 50 points, I don't know, on like six dribbles. People are going to kill me because they, they know exactly what it is and I can't believe I can't remember. But he was able to do that because he was a part of a team and the team saw that guy is hot I don't need to score because if I give it to him, I know he's going to score, right? And so, like, you saw that sort of altruistic dynamic where, hey, Seth, Seth Curry could have, um, Steph Curry could have, like, probably hit as many points as he wanted to in that game, but he saw that this team or this teammate, Clay, was, like, lighting it up, and he's like, no, 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 he's getting the ball. Like, let's get him the ball. And, like, he did get him in the ball in such a way that he didn't even have to dribble in order to score that much. So it's kind of amazing. And so he also pointed to, and uh, Bill Simmons, if any, if you've ever listened to Bill Simmons, you know he's a Celtics fan. He like grew up going to Celtics games. There's, I, I mean, I've seen footage from Celtics games where like, hey, that's Bill Simmons as this kid sitting in the crowd um, when Bird and Parrish and McHale were going crazy. Anyway, you also, he also mentioned, uh, you know, Bill Russell had many sort of times that he talked about team and what that meant. And like, again, this is one of the greatest players of all time. Talk about the measure of his own play is how he made the team better. And what's cool about that and making the parallel to a teacher is that the measure of a teacher could be in how they make their, could be their class better, right? In order, there's going to be some sacrifice there that probably like the best teacher is not going to be the one that's sitting up as a sage on the stage, but probably the one that's on the side that might let the students identify students where they could be at the front of the stage, where they can teach each other, where there's, there's multiple levels of learning going on, where the one that's giving the instructions to another student has to think, how best do I put this learning that I have into words so it can get to them, thus making that, that student in the teacher role learn better. But then also that student that's listening who speaks the same language that's more, you know, as, as closer to that level of understanding of the student that's, that's teaching them is getting to learn also. And so there's multiple levels of learning and that all happens from the teacher sitting on the side and maybe not putting the spotlight on themselves. And so, yeah, Russell says the measure of play is how he, how he made the team better, but that could be as a classroom, but that also could be as a part of a teaching team, right? That, hey, maybe I don't have to be the one that always plans this lesson. Maybe I could listen to someone else and what they're doing in order to make our team better. And so... There is some sacrificial, again, talking about that altruistic dynamic. Um, you know, and there's also all sorts of other examples of the secret of um, the secret of basketball and playing out here where you can see it's about players where, or it's about the, the people where, you know, the Spurs, the Bulls. I mean, the Bulls, you think, well, Michael Jordan was on the Bulls. He was the greatest player of all time. Yeah, he was the greatest player of all time. But he didn't become the champion until he realized 
hey, I got to get everyone involved here. It can't be just me. If it's just me, we're not going to win. And he knew that. You can even see some of the greatest shots in the games. Yes, he had his some of his the greatest shots at the end of games. But you can also point to a couple championships where it was uh, decided by John Paxson when they won their first championship or Steve Kerr, one of the later championships, where they hit the last shot. And it was just kind of like he knew that he wanted to win. And in order to win, sometimes it meant he needed to take a step back, right? Um he knew he needed his players. He knew he needed his team. Same thing for the Spurs. I mean, Tim Duncan and Manu Ginobili and uh, Tony Parker of the San Antonio Spurs, same thing, where each of them could have forced the issue and tried to take all the shots or, um, you know, put, made it all about them. But, you know, Greg Popovich and that team, they, they made it so it was about the team. The team, <laughs> Spurs culture, right? It's almost a cliche now, but it was a real thing where they figured out, like they had the secret. And for many, many years, be, kind of way beyond when you thought they'd be done, they were still winning championships, and you, you saw that. And so there's something there to the secret of basketball where, again, it's not about basketball. It's about people. And the secret of teaching is about these relationships. And I, I guess that's what's cool about having some of these um, this podcasts is about bringing up these relationships and seeing you know, some of the conversations we've had recently with uh some of the people from my education past is because I have these relationships and I want to share them. And that's, that's what's cool about having a podcast like this and able to do that. And so I guess one other thing that I wanted to bring or one of the learning from the book of basketball, and again, if anybody wants to dive deep on the book of basketball, I'm, I'm all for it. But one other thing I wanted to bring up the, the learning is to not forget the secret when you change roles. And so if we learn the secret that it is about people, it is about relationships um, it is about having this altruistic dynamic um, that hinged on, you know, forfeiting our own benefit for the, that of the team. If we change roles, so if you go from a teacher to a math coach, if I go from, if I went from a uh, high school math teacher to my role as a, now a teacher of teachers, is not forgetting the secret. And I guess that was what Bill Simmons was kind of criticizing Isaiah Thomas. It seemed like he forgot the secret when he moved into the general manager role. He was building teams that, maybe was not all about the secret. And so that is something that I, I also want I learned from this book is you gotta you gotta remember. You gotta remember the secret. Don't ever forget the secret. And I I guess I'd not remember not forgetting the secret when I'm in my other teaching roles as like a parent or uh um from church or coaching or whatever is remembering that Whatever it is I'm trying to teach, if it's basketball or if it's math, if it's the teaching of mathematics, is not forgetting that it is about relationships. And so just to come out and present something to someone and think that they're just going to get it without building that relationship, without honoring people, you're going to hit a lot of dead ends. And so there we go. There's some learning uh, from the book of basketball from... uh, Again, the book of basketball, the NBA according to the sports guy by Bill Simmons. If you like that one, what's cool is... You can find that book at a used bookstore for probably a buck um, or on Amazon. Um, I know I've I've actually bought it twice, and I only think I've spent $5 total. But um, that's a great book. If you're a basketball fan, if you know someone who's a basketball fan, it goes super nerdy. Yeah, there's some things that are out of date, but that's cool because there's the Book of Basketball podcast out there that updates some of it. And there'll probably be even more of those coming out, especially uh, they, they did an update to Chris Paul and 
Right now, Chris Paul is in the NBA Finals, so there could be some updates there. But uh, as you might know, I'm probably rooting for the the Bucks uh, to do some damage in the Finals. So we're just not going to say more about that, just to say we didn't jinx it. All right. So uh, now what we want to do is play this podcast, uh, the Teaching Math Teaching podcast on wrapping up a book club that we did on Rough Draft Math. And what's going to be nice is I'm going to post all the materials that we have associated with this book club. For this one, we didn't have so much. This was the first book club we did about a year ago. Um, and I think it was throughout the month of June that we did this one. And we did the, the chats. We did weekly chats, but we did them on Instagram, um, on Instagram Live. And I didn't really know what I was doing there. Didn't record them or say I recorded them, but I, I, we played them. I didn't save them. I didn't record them. So that's my fault. Uh, in the future, we did them on Facebook and we did them on YouTube. So in future, there'll be more materials associated with each of the books that we're going to um, talk about in, in the next few episodes. But for now, uh, it's going to be um, just uh, this culminating episode. And then we have a PDF with the uh, breakdown of how we talked about the chapters throughout the, uh, um, throughout the book club. And then again, we're going to do three more of these uh, after this one. So we're going to replay um, this episode of the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast, dealing with the uh, our culminating episode for the book club around Rough Draft Math with Mandy, uh, Dr. Mandy Jansen from the University of Delaware. I'll come back and we'll close it up afterwards. So without further delay, here is a little replay of our Teaching Math Teaching Podcast episode on uh, wrapping up the book club on Rough Draft Math. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of MathMax Teacher Educators. The hosts are Ava Thanheiser, Dusty Jones, and I am Joel Amadon. Today, we are talking with Mandy Jansen from the University of Delaware because she is the author of our Teaching Math Teaching Summer Book Club choice for June. We have been reading and discussing Rough Draft Math, Revising to Learn every week on Instagram Live, and it's been a pleasure. Uh, and we've been doing that throughout June and are wrapping up the month with this culminating podcast episode. Welcome, Mandy. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. And I know you've been on a, a previous episode of the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast, but uh, anything else you want to share in a, like a brief introduction? So I am a teacher educator in the School of Education at the University of Delaware, and I have a joint appointment in the math department at my university. And um, I work with secondary teachers in professional development, in-service teachers, and then I teach undergrads studying to be elementary and middle school teachers. Fantastic. So we are talking about your book, um, Rough Draft Math, and we have been talking about it, like I said before in the intro. And you know, this idea of rough draft math, it's been something that I've heard you talk about at conferences. And I mean, well, we all have, have heard you talk about it at conferences and in other papers and things like that. And now we're excited that you have the book. But can you share the history of this work and the evolution of the idea of rough draft thinking? I'd be happy to. So I originally started to think about the idea of rough draft talk, probably back in graduate school, actually, when I was taking a class about analyzing discourse and the framing of talk can be in a rough draft or a final draft space from researchers such as Neil Mercer, Douglas Barnes, that idea kind of remained in the back of my mind for a long time. 
And historically, I've always been really interested in understanding how teachers can promote productive discourse. I conducted a study group, I would say maybe five years ago, with secondary teachers in Delaware. And we were all really invested in trying to improve classroom discussions so they felt more exploratory. So it wasn't just show and tell. It was a discussion where people would continue to learn during the discussion. So we read um, chapters from a book called Exploring Talk in School. And the teachers in the study group said it would be more useful to call the kind of talk instead of exploratory talk, rough draft talk, because rough draft is a term that has meaning for kids. So we went with that and in the study group, teachers generated ideas about how they could um, use the concept of rough drafts in their math classroom in different ways. So everything in the book is inspired by or informed by ideas that teachers had when they were playing with the notion of rough drafts in math class. So that's where the book evolved from, was from working with teachers. Also, Ava and I conducted a project in one of her classes, a math content course for teachers, where she developed an intervention that we called the label, where students would label their posters that they might create in small groups as in terms of how complete the work was on the poster and how confident they were in their work to really normalize the idea that we can share our thinking when it's not finished and when we're not sure. So I, Ava and I have an article in the Mathematics Teacher Educator about that. The teachers in my study group, a few of us wrote an article in math teaching in the middle school about rough draft talk. At that point, I thought I was kind of done. I'd written a couple pieces with Ava and with the teachers, but then um, the book came into being because I had been giving some talks about this and people wanted to know more. So then I had the opportunity to write this whole book and I didn't know I had enough ideas for a whole book. So it's pretty exciting. Right. I mean, it's so exciting to hear about that. And I, I really wanted you to answer this question because like the idea, like the, 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 the kernel of an idea or whatever, taking an idea and thinking about all the different ways you had to uh, work with the idea and people you got to collaborate with and then leading to the book and like the idea is not done, you know, and I think sometimes out there with this idea of academia and things like for everything is a new idea, right? There's not this one-to-one -one correspondence between idea and product, right? That you can, the evolution of idea is going to lead to several different things, um, along the way. And then it could actually be the trajectory of a career too. And I just, I love that part of it. And, and I don't know if, if, did you get any, like, I mean, and the, I guess the, the mile markers are the encouragement along the way of like, what were those key pieces of encouragement that you got? That's really interesting. I, I, for me, the key pieces of encouragement were a few different um, moments, mostly around a teacher showing me how the concept of a rough draft would generate inspiration for them. And so my thinking about what rough drafts look like in math class kept expanding because people kept telling me, this inspires me to do this in my classroom. And then somebody else would say, this inspires me to do that in the classroom. And so I felt like it was a snowball. I just kept 
getting to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn more. And so then it felt like I needed to preserve and share what I was learning. So I would say it's a series of moments and it can happen, say, after a conference presentation, a teacher will come up to me and say, well, why have this idea? Do you think it would make any sense? And I'm like, of course, wow, I never thought about it that way. That's really useful. So I think those interactions really buoy me and make me feel like I'm a part of a learning community with anyone who's interested in the idea of rough drafts. Yeah. And, and just to pivot a little bit, I mean, I'm going to put Ava on the spot. Ava, how did the, how did the collaboration between the two of you come to be? Hmm. <laughs> I think we were just chatting uh, at one of our get-togethers about ideas. Mandy, is that right? Was that in one of our writing retreats? I think so. I think that you were, um, you were, you had heard me speak about rough drafts at the teachers development group leadership seminar and you wanted to come up with an idea that we could try in our classroom and maybe study it together. So we brainstormed together. What could we actually try? That's awesome. There's the power of community coming together and support some, uh, some new thinking. That's awesome. Um, so we've had a chance to do a lot of talking you and I, uh, through uh, the summer book club chats on Instagram live and hadn't had some, great conversations and they're able to really dive deep into this content. So what are some highlights that you took away from those weekly book chats? Well, Joel, first I want to say, I'm really thankful that you spent so much time thinking with me about the ideas in the book because it helped my own thinking again, continue to grow. So one of the things that you were asking me about was um, what sort of broader orientations or perspectives or conditions need to be in place for rough draft thinking to, to be um, a flourishing experience for students in the classroom. And together, we brought up this idea of just being really open in our orientation to other people's thinking, assuming that what other people have to say has value, that it makes sense, that there's something that can be built upon. And you brought up this idea of the concept of open hands receiving yeah. other people's thinking with open hands. And that metaphor is really stuck with me. So I'm thankful for that. Another um, was you pointed out to me that the process that I put into place for doing this work was an example of rough drafting and revising. Mm. I gave the example early on about, we used to call it exploratory talk, picking up on the work of, Douglas Barnes, and then we revised it to the label of rough draft talk. And you, you laughed, you're like, well, that's, that's the same. That's revising. You're doing the rough draft work through the work with the teachers. And it's really funny because I hadn't made that connection so directly before. So uh, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I want to say one more thing that stood out to me from something that you shared with me. Um, chapter five is about my reflections on the concept of humanizing the math classroom or rehumanizing the math classroom. And I go through a series of revisions to how I might define that concept. And the revisions are inspired by work of classroom teachers and the readings I've done. And so um, you gave a really nice example in work that you've done with teachers about asking teachers to elicit their current philosophy of teaching and then over a period of time, they would revisit and revise that philosophy of teaching. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated how you were able to point out how the way I wrote the chapter could be related to a way that we engage with 
teachers in their ongoing revision of their thinking about their practice. So those are some, a few connections I really appreciated that you brought up. Yeah. And I really, I like the, and, you know, I'm just going to, you know, pile some praise on you for a second. Just like, there's certain things about the book that really make it approachable to, you know, like you're not presenting some like, you know, super clean version of examples. Though These are real examples from real teachers doing this work. And it's like, not saying like, here's the answer, but here are ways that you can do this work, which I really appreciate. The second thing was that, um, where that last chapter, when you do talk about, uh, or the second to last chapter, chapter five, when you talk about your definition of humanizing pedagogy and, and the way you like treated it as like a draft that you keep going through as you become more and more informed and thinking about all the conversations and interactions with folks that kind of led to, um, or even with the literature. I mean, it's just, it's kind of a, a, a nice inside peek. I, I did a lot of comparisons between that and Magdalene and Lampert's work in, in teaching with problems and problems of teaching where you kind of get inside her head to her thinking about things as they're kind of moving along with the, the classroom that's in that book. This book, I think, does some of that same stuff where you kind of, you get inside Mandy's head a little bit, which is great. It's a great head to be in. And uh, to think about like how you're, you're, you know, sorting out some of these ideas, which I really enjoy. Thank you. Magdalene Lampert writes about intellectual courage and intellectual humility, right? And um, I think that if we ask people to share their rough draft thinking, it requires both courage and humility. And Mm. so if we're going to invite people to be in this rough draft space with us, I think it's essential that we model that kind of humility and vulnerability about our own thinking so people feel safe themselves to engage in that kind of thinking so that was I don't know something I hoped for yeah well so you you know you obviously heard my thoughts on on the book and then um throughout our Instagram live chats and but I'm curious to hear what Dusty and Ava might have to say uh, about some of their highlights from the book and thinking about some of the ideas that you put forth Mandy I uh just finished this book a couple of days ago and uh, I just w- want to say I really like it. Um, that's 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 my starting statement. Um, thank you. Thank you, Dusty. Moving on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so as I, one of the things that I was thinking about just now as as uh, we've been as we've been talking is somewhere I I've heard and I wish I could find the source that um, people tend to learn things, but if we don't mark like you had mentioned in the book you know, where our understanding is at a certain point in time, and then reflect back on that, we might not see uh, how we've been progressing in our learning through that, uh, through through whatever it might be. And so I thought that was a really nice thing that as I read through the book, I was like, well, I agree with this. And this is a good idea. And yeah, I like this. So I thought, actually, I'm probably learning. I know when I was a first, uh, a new teacher, I didn't. I wasn't doing all these things, and I hadn't even thought about doing a lot of these things. Uh, but now, as I've been going through it, I feel like I've really been learning through your book about my own teaching, and specifically, um, uh, as I read the last chapter about how uh, <laughs> the title "Putting It into Practice" or "We Are All Works in Progress." I really like that. Uh, we are all works in progress um, idea, and as you reflect on the semester that you had hoped to do all of these different uh, <laughs> things and then life happened 
mm-hmm. whatever life might be. Um, and, and you were kind of honest with that. Uh, but then the fact that you wanted to look back and see what you have done, and you were thankfully, I think, pleasantly surprised that your students really did pick up a lot of that. That just reminded me of how every time I get course evaluations, I tuck them away. I don't open them. I don't open the email um, until I've, you know, got my favorite beverage in my hand and, and I'm ready to, you know, uh, take a look at it. And, and it usually is not bad, but I, there's just a part of me that doesn't want that evaluation. <laughs> if I could just avoid that. So I thought that was really brave of you, not only to do that, but then to, I really liked how you wrote about that process uh, that you went through. Thanks. I, um, I got a question from someone. That's why it says um, the it, like putting it into practice. Somebody, a math coach said to me, how often do we have to do it? How often do we have to do this rough drafting? And I was like, oh, what's, what does that mean? It. <laughs> yeah. And I realized that um, the it could be asking students to revise explicitly. How often do you have to do that? But the other piece, all the aspects of building the classroom culture so students can communicate to learn and how their draft ideas are welcome, that's more like a spirit of rough drafting. That I'd like to, I'd like that to be in place all the time to permeate yeah. the experience. And so some of it you would only need to do sometimes. The revising experiences aren't going to happen all the time. But other parts, it's more like our orientation toward each other and how we set up the classroom environment and how we interact that that's more of an all the time thing. I put a lot of pressure on myself. I thought, okay, this book is an act of curation, right? I've learned so much from so many different teachers. Now um, I'm going to have the responsibility to show that it can all come together. <laughs> right. So look at me, the perfect rough draft math teacher, the greatest no. teaching of all time. <laughs> no. And so then it was like, Oh no. And so I, so my reaction was, if I can't even do all of this stuff, who can, (laughs) I mean, not to, not to say that I should be able to do all the things, but I had a lot more information, right. About how to do this. And, but the students took away more than I thought. I asked them some really open-ended questions about what they took away from the course. And I didn't prompt them to talk about certain things and they brought up many aspects that I hoped that they would take away so then I traced back, okay, what was I able to do? And trying certain um, practices sometimes ended up having an impact. So I learned that you don't necessarily, the book isn't saying you need to do every single one of these ideas to have a successful experience. It's more a menu of options. And if you have a spirit of rough drafting and you choose some other options, it'll make a difference. And um I just, I needed to be real about that because I remember being a, when I was a teacher and I went to professional development and I would get very overwhelmed. Like I can't Mm. overhaul all my teaching to be like this. And so I feel like it's more liberating if you can go to a professional development experience and you could say, oh, this complements what I already do. I can pick up these aspects and gradually extend my practice. That feels more realistic to me. Yeah. Ava, did you have any uh, any thoughts to add? I know you had a chance to play with it, these ideas with the study, and I know you've done some some work with it in your own thing. Anything that you wanted to add with regards to this book and some of the ideas that stuck out to you? 
Yeah, so I incorporate this in a lot of my teaching and it is um, something that my students really enjoy and especially this last term where we had to go all online and when you share your thinking, everybody can see it and you don't see reactions. Mm. I think it was really uh, important for my students and a lot of them mentioned it later that they really enjoyed the idea of um, being able to provide rough draft thinking. Uh, One of the thoughts that I had was, so as we go through the revision process, so one of the powers of rough draft thinking and sharing rough draft thinking is that you can say, hey, this is where I'm at. And this is what I know. And I know it might not be all the way there yet, but here's where I'm at. And then we start into the revisions process. And I've been starting to think about like, what what do my students base their revisions of? of? So where do they look? And this question comes from like an authority perspective, like where do they look for how to move forward? Mm. Do they look to their classmates? Do they look to the teacher? Do they look? And then as they, provide revisions how do they um how do they decide whether the revisions work for them or not and i have in my classes so far gone through several rounds of revision so and then i have them at some point create a final draft that is like so here's the best work that you can do versus here's my rough draft thinking And so I've just been thinking through like where, how does it work that they work together to create more sophisticated solutions or bring in more ideas and how do they decide which ideas to bring in? So I'd be curious what Mandy thinks about that. I really um, am intrigued by this notion in terms of an authority perspective, right? And and whose ideas get taken up and whose ideas get positioned as valuable in the process of revising. One um, related idea that isn't exactly what you're talking about is something that concerns me about revising is sometimes when people are exposed to an idea that's different from theirs, they might reject their draft completely Mm -hmm. and think, oh, this is the better way what does it take to revise our thinking in a way that honors your ideas, the strengths that were in your ideas? Don't discard that, right? Like see strengths in your thinking, but then also be open to learning from other people's thinking. I wonder if that's related. So something about this orientation toward everyone's ideas have value, mine and other people's. That's one reason why, so one of the revision routines in the book is from the math language routines out of Stanford, stronger and clearer each time. And so it would be, maybe I would write a draft and Dusty would write a draft. We would trade and read each other's and take our papers back and then write a new draft, each of us would. But I added this piece where you would reflect Um, what you changed and what inspired that change. That way um, you're thinking about, you're assuming your ideas have value and your partner's ideas have value. So what inspired the change? 
it doesn't get at this notion of how do you know if your change is an improvement? So that's another level to analyze, which I really love. This got me thinking um, a little bit. Or Ava, did you have a follow-up to that? No, I'm good. Okay. It just got me thinking like the, you know, thinking about this idea of, you know, we kind of talked a little bit in the book chats about re rejection versus revision, right? And like, or the abandoning of an idea. And it's like, there's so much, it, from my perspective, it, it feels like there's so much on the teacher of like when an idea comes out and it's like, and I know you can't see me, but like having two hands held out, you know, kind of like all state, like where you're, you're grabbing that idea and you're making sure like, I've got this idea and I'm going to treat it as valued. And, you know, even if, even if you don't think too highly, I'm going to treat that idea as valued and show it to other people, like, look at this idea. And so that there is this, there is this like culture of we're going to value ideas. And I think that's where I, at the beginning of the book does a really good job of thinking about how do you set up your classroom to, to value ideas. And so that even if it's your own idea, you will value that idea. And that's what we do here. And so I, I just think that that's, that's a big thing that came through with regards to the book, but also something you need to be aware of, right? If, if you're seeing that people are rejecting their ideas, well, how do we, how do we make sure that they see the intrinsic value of them? Definitely. I want to um, go back to Ava's wonderment about whose ideas get taken up with revision. Um, I think that as, a, as an instructor, one way I tried to think about that was I would have a clipboard with different students, like everybody in the class's names. And during class periodically, I would make notes like who I was calling on and for what reason. And then so I could study that at the end of class. And then the next class kind of make notes to myself, whoa, I didn't position this person as having strengths yet, you know, and kind of prioritize myself to make sure certain um, students' ideas were being taken up, playing a role in that um, to make sure that authority could be distributed in different ways. Imani Goffney um, has helpfully pushed me, she's at the University of Maryland, to say it's important to notice whose ideas are being positioned as drafts mm -hmm. and whose ideas are being positioned as further along and are there differences along those dimensions by race. So I need to keep track of whose ideas I'm positioning in what ways. And then I'm hoping the students will internalize that and think about like, am I listening to other people or am I always listening to the same people? I could probably be more explicit about that with my students that I'm trying to really um, observe and notice everyone's strengths in different ways, but, and then they could maybe start to try to observe and notice strengths in different people's perspectives. But um, anyway, that's something I think about in relationship to Ava's wonderment. Nice. Well, I think this is, this is the, the point where we want to pivot a little bit to thinking about using the book to teach math teachers, right? So we have maybe some folks out there that think, okay, I, I'm all in. I, I want to start using some rough draft thinking in my math methods class or when I'm doing some things with in-service teachers and whatnot. How do you, how do you or how would you use the book? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking how would you for myself and, and, and for anyone else out there that's not doing, how would you or how do you use this book to teach math teachers in either methods, content courses, or even in-service professional development? How would, you, how would you use this book? 
So the two types of courses I teach at the undergraduate level are math content courses for teachers and math methods or pedagogy courses for teachers. And so I would use the book or ideas differently for each one. So in the math content course, what's great about that is that it's an opportunity for students to experience rough draft math. So I would be wanting to try to model some of the ideas in the book like carefully setting up a culture of rough drafting that I talk about in chapter two. Maybe I could assign the students to read chapter one. It's free online at stenhouse.com. So they could read about the ideas in chapter one about what is rough drafts. I could talk with them really explicitly about my orientation toward how people learn. So Dusty was saying what we did earlier in our career versus what we do now in our career. And one of the ways that I've changed a lot is I've been more upfront and explicit about what I think it means to learn. And um, so they would then understand why I'm asking them to do certain things in the classroom. So um, also thinking about how I could create opportunities in the math content course for students to revise. So in my class, they can revise their quizzes, for instance. How does my assessment structure match up with revising? How do my lessons incorporate opportunities to revise? So giving um, the pre-service teachers the experience of drafting, really, in the math content course. In the methods class, I would like their planning process to incorporate some of these aspects. So planning what you're going to do to try to explicitly build culture with your students, such as incorporating the idea of generating maybe a classroom set of rights of the learner from the work of Crystal Klenick Craig and Olga Torres. I talk about their work in the book, like the right to make a mistake, the right mm -hmm. to say what makes sense to you. Maybe that's something you want to plan for or what other strategies do you want to plan for with your class? We can talk about that in the methods class and develop strategies for that. In the methods class, when we talk about task selection, math task selection and implementation, in what ways um, does the task provide opportunities for students to communicate their thinking to keep learning? So it could be one of the criteria for choosing tasks if your goal is developing conceptual understanding. Um, also explicitly planning some revision experiences for students so they could read chapter four and to think about oh, how can I build in revising at some point in this lesson? And they don't have to necessarily try out all the ideas in the classroom, but they could plan some or they could do some in micro teaching. Yeah. But I would say those are three goals that I would have in a methods class that I think um, would be useful. And then chapter five being about humanizing the math classroom, I'd hope that that would be a theme that would permeate uh, my methods class or other folks methods class because it's it's in our ways of how we orient ourselves to our students in lots of um, practices. Well, and I know we got a, a couple other uh, math teacher educators on the line. So Ava and Dusty, you have any ideas on on using the book or the ideas in the book? And I know Ava explicitly, you you have done this. Um, so I um, worked with Mandy and recorded a video that is available for everybody to kind of use. It's a very brief description of what rough draft thinking is. So if you want to use that instead of the other ones, you can, but there's other ones available. And then just 
making clear, like, I think it's really helpful for the students to understand that it's okay to just share your thinking. Mm. And I think the reason why I'm so interested in the authority question that I mentioned earlier is because often when the elementary content um, teachers come into our classes, they don't yet know often that mathematics can make sense and that it's not just a bunch of rules you had to memorize. And so this whole notion of I can make sense of an idea and I should not accept an idea if it doesn't make sense to me is something they have to learn in the class. Because so far, I mean, if we all remember or we work with any children, usually when you ask them a math problem, like what is two plus two, the answer is not four. The answer is four with a question at the end, right? Yeah. Because uh -huh. they're so used to like, four? well, I think it's four, is it right? And they always wait for somebody else to decide whether it's right or wrong. And so this notion of deciding on your own whether something makes sense is something that we have to really dig into. And I think rough draft thinking is one very useful way to kind of say, well, what does make sense to me and try to figure that out and where am I stuck? But you also have to like understand that something can make sense, which is like a whole different idea. One of the things that I uh, have learned from this book and, and the practice I'm going to change is allowing my students to revise on some assignments uh, in the past, I would have students ask me, this is in a, in a college classroom, you know, can, do we do test revisions or can I revise my homework? Or they didn't maybe use those words specifically, but they were looking for, can I get some extra points if I go back and redo some of the stuff that I got wrong? And in the past, my idea was no. Um, this was the assignment. You had this certain amount of time to do it. That's what it is. Um, and examining my own motives on that, I think I was mostly thinking it's easiest to grade if I just have to grade it once. Um, and then what will happen, you know, the world will collapse if people get a chance to work <laughs> together and, and try to figure out, you know, what's the right answer and, and what goes in there. So I really liked the description that you gave. And it made me think, yes, in, in my class I'm teaching next month, I'm going to allow for that. Uh, not on every assignment, but on some assignments, just to to see how it goes. The other thing that uh, a, a problem of practice that I've been working with is in a class that I teach uh, for, is for ma mathematics majors and it's in Euclidean geometry and most of the students there want to become teachers. I started a, an assignment where they would present a proof or a couple of proofs throughout the year and students worked really hard to make sure that their proof was just perfect, or at least that's how I wanted it to be. Um, I, I was hoping that they would work really hard. Um, recently, I, in, I made a part of the rubric that they needed to come with me and talk about their proof uh, before that. And uh, that has been really helpful in trying to, to see what their ideas were. A lot of people were coming like, you know, five hours, four hours before class to say, here's my ideas. What do you think? And they were really nowhere near thought out. Um, but I think what I want to do next time I get a chance to teach this class is not have them present their final proofs, but present 
a rough draft of a proof. So maybe they don't have, you know, a week or two weeks to prepare uh, for this. But I just want to see, I just want to value the the rough draft of that proof because I have most of my students come in and they say to me, I passed the proofs class that was the prerequisite, but I still don't know how to prove geometry stuff. Um, and so I, I think rough draft thinking would really benefit students there, especially if they're going to be high school teachers. I love that. I, I think it's so important to make this shift of uh, learning experiences as a performance. I need to perform as well as I can and shift it more toward learning is this ongoing iterative process. So I may have performed well in a previous proofs class, but knowing that proving is a challenging activity and we can keep growing, even if we got an A in a proofs class, we can keep growing in our capabilities of proving and reasoning with each other. So that orientation I think is really shining through as you talk right now and it's inspirational. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, and I'll be sure and use uh, some of those sentence stems that that you provided for students to, especially with my secondary majors, they're not used to talking with each other um, about this sort of thing. And um, maybe that's their prior experiences uh, in the mathematics classroom. But even if something is great, you know, what else can we do? What could, how could we make this more clear? Uh, right. So I found that people are more used to talking about each other's thinking when there's something to pick apart and critique, maybe point out a mistake. When a solution looks pretty good, people are like, well, what's there to say? And so putting up a, uh, some sentence starters helps us learn how to talk with each other about ideas that can help them continue to grow. So if we could have other goals for revision besides fixing a problem, we could say, um, Maybe the explanation could become more elegant or more concise, or we could layer in different kinds of terminology that's more aligned with the discipline. You know, maybe it could be um, more elaborated, more, more connected, different kinds of connections. Maybe it could be more illuminating with a different kind of visual representation. So thinking about a range of ways that we could revise work and then sentence starters like, I don't know, that makes sense to me because... That makes me think of, I appreciate how you, so getting a number of different ways to get started talking about something that hopefully people will eventually internalize and then you won't have to prompt them as much. But we all need support to learn how to interact differently. So I view the sentence starters as kind of an inspiration and then people can kind of riff on them and go from there and not necessarily feel controlled by them, but maybe inspired by them. So yeah, the sentence starters are, have a, a pretty good role within the book and it might be a, a way to help folks do this. Any other like tips or maybe cautions uh, when using the ideas in, in this book? So one thing that periodically comes up for me when I talk with folks about this is, is this just for honors students as if this is a type of kid, right? <laughs> it's not everybody has mathematical brilliance, but can I just use this only with the students who are in this track <laughs> or is it for everybody? And then I get the other flip. Is this for students? Maybe I would need it for my enrichment class or um, remediation or something like that. And um, that perspective doesn't really align with how I think about 
rough drafts, I think about it like this is how people learn things by uh, making their ideas an object that they can reflect on and then seeing other people's ideas and then iteratively improving our understanding. I think that's how a lot of us learn most things. So I wouldn't say that I would save these practices for certain certain types of classes, certain, I don't believe in types of kids, but you know what I mean? I, right. I would say that this is how people learn generally. So that's one thing that's come up for me in the past that I've had to think through how to talk about. Nice. Um, any, Ava, I know, again, I know you've, you use some of these ideas, like any, any tips that you have, if, if people are thinking about using this idea of revising their thinking when working with math teachers? I don't know that I have tips, but I think reflecting on revisions has been really useful. Like, how was I thinking? What what did I change? How did I change it? Or how did I build on it? Um, yeah. Nice. I've been thinking about how rough draft thinking has created a different kind of lens for me when I select and sequence student work to talk about in a conversation. So... I'm looking at their work, whether it's it was in the Google Slides of my students um, in the online class or walking around the room and looking for student work. And I look for examples that um, have uh, ideas that can be built upon, that have strengths to them, and then where there's room to grow. So I use the possibility for amplifying strengths and opportunities for revision when I'm selecting and sequencing students' work now. And I wouldn't have done that a few years ago. Nice. I mean, I just overall, I just, I like the, and, and we kind of talked about this during our chats is the idea of marking something so then you can see the growth, you know, and being able and wanting teachers to, to see, to see the growth and not only just for the student to see their own growth, but also for teachers to see it and to see like the, how the ideas evolve. And I, I just think that's pretty valuable in order to be able to market and see see what happens after that and so that we're not just because i think you know, there's just sometimes we just we freeze each other in time a little bit even our own teaching and so to see even like the evolution of our own teaching or the evolution of our um of our students in their development as doers of mathematics it's like this helps you see that evolution yep and so some of the professional development i've tried with teachers one thing that's been useful is after we do our first session about what are rough drafts and how we can incorporate in the classroom, the next session would be they would bring in student work. And so they would bring in student works where you where the students would have multiple drafts of solutions to a problem. Mm -hmm. And then they would look at um, the students' drafts and talk about how the thinking evolved. And so we have a different kind of artifact of practice now if you can see multiple drafts of students' thinking. So that's been really interesting to see how the multiple drafts provide us insight into developing our own math knowledge for teaching and what it means to come to know and understand an idea. Well, and we have come to a very good understanding of this idea, but we always have more to grow. And uh, so if people want to learn more about rough draft math, how might they be able to get this book? What's the best way, Mandy? Thanks for asking. So Rough Draft Math is a book published by Stenhouse. And the cheapest price for this book is on the publisher's website. 
stenhouse.com and the the version that's on Amazon is a little more expensive. So I think you can get free shipping at Stenhouse too. If you want to learn about the ideas and not read the whole book, the first chapter is available on the Stenhouse website. It says preview this book. And the first chapter is there along with a foreword by Dr. Robert Berry, which yes. I'm very thankful that he was generous enough to write that. I'm very honored by that. So that's a place where people can think about the ideas. They could also read the article in Mass Teaching in the Middle School. It was at the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, called Rough Draft Talk. Uh, they could go to the March 2016 issue of the Mathematics Teacher Educator for an article, first author, Ava Thanheiser, second author, me. So these are some places where people could read more if they would like. Yeah, and we'll, we'll also post a link to Ava's video along with the podcast notes here. Awesome. So, yeah. Um, and so thank you. Yeah. Again, for being the, uh, the first, the first in the uh, summer book clubs for the teaching math teaching podcast. We Yay. appreciate it. Yes. It was great. And I'm so oh, thankful. Ahead. I'm humbled and honored that you selected my book for this process. I learned so much from talking with you. So thank you. And this conversation was really enlightening today. So I appreciate that people shared how they think about the ideas. It was an easy decision. It was great. So, and uh, a shameless plug for the, uh, uh, podcast uh, is that we are continuing the Summer Book Club in July. We are going to be reading high school mathematics lessons to explore, understand, and respond to social injustice. So follow the Teaching Math Teaching podcast on Instagram at Teaching Math Teaching and Twitter at Teach Math Teach for more information about the book club, the reading schedule, and where to find our weekly chats because we're going to adjust our, uh, we're probably going to Facebook Live, but just want to see if we can, because there's a lot of authors in this book. So we want to see if we can get more than one because uh, Instagram Live is good for one, but not good for... Yeah, you and I were on Instagram Live, but you right. want a way to talk with multiple people. Yeah, that's great. So thank you, Mandy. I appreciate it. And thanks again for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We hope that you're able to implement something that you just heard and take an opportunity to interact with other math teacher educators. All right, that is all... Uh, we have uh, for this episode of the Eminem Planet podcast. Thank you. And if you're looking for the Teaching Math Teaching podcast, more episodes of that, you can find it wherever you get podcasts. Um, you can also go to the show notes uh, for this podcast, which can be found at AminemPlanet.com forward slash episode 48. And if you're looking for ways to support the podcast, you can subscribe to this podcast, or you can also subscribe to the Teaching Math Teaching podcast while you're at it uh, so that you always have the latest episode when it's available. Uh, we're going to start recording more episodes of the teaching math teaching podcast in the fall so you'll be ready whenever we put one out there and if you subscribe it'll be come right to your podcast inbox you can rate a review the podcast or your podcast provider you can subscribe to the amazon planet download which contains teaching resources updates from the amazon planet have the resources here all available to you so um you can do that by hitting the subscribe button at amazonplanet.com there's a bunch of places to join the email list at amazonplanet.com if you're looking for that um you can also follow at amazon planet on instagram twitter linkedin or like the amazon planet facebook page a lot of people are doing that appreciate it um you'll find out all the different things that we're doing here and get some updates on other things that are happening around amazon planet you can also check out the amazon planet bookstore or amazon planet bookshop links are in the footer at amazonplanet.com where you purchase support the production costs of the podcast Really, this podcast is sponsored by anyone wearing a Be The Good shirt, and I really appreciate that. It's been outstanding. And 
Finally, thank you for listening to this episode of the Amazon Planet podcast. Uh, you know, thanks obviously to uh, the folks at the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast, Dusty and Ava and, uh, and Dr. Amanda Jansen for being willing to uh, share their uh, insights and glad we got to replay that on this feed. Thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And finally, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you have been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace.